I wonder if you heard how honest about the human condition our lessons were for today. I hope you also heard how honest they are about the goodness of God. And that's what we stand in today. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would open your word to us and speak truth. We need the truth, even uncomfortable truth. For in truth, we have our life. Any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your word remain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning again to you. Over the last couple of Sundays, just two, we have begun an ordinary time series on the book of Romans. And as Father Carl uh, said when he introduced this series, what we're going to be doing is following the selected Sunday lectionary passage from the book of Romans, which don't cover the entire letter. Uh, Instead, they kind of skim across what is the essential arc of the book, kind of like a, a rock skipping across the surface of a lake. This is why today, on the third Sunday of it, we are already at chapter five of the letter, whereas there is a way of preaching through the book of Romans that could ostensibly take a year's time before getting to this same juncture. Um, Sometimes the satirical Christian newspaper, the Babylon Bee, says it best. In a post titled, Reformed Pastor Completes Brief 47-Year-Long Sermon Series on the Book of Romans, it says, wrapping up the series that began during the Vietnam War, Reformed Reformed Minister Michael L. Foster preached the final sermon in his brief 47-year-long study on the Book of Romans this past Sunday morning. The last message was a short, breezy, one-hour exposition of Romans 16:27d, which reads, Amen. <laughs> While I'm glad to not spend an unnecessarily uh, long amount of time on one book, yet in moving a bit more quickly, we have to be sure to recap the essential points of what the author is trying to convey. He's writing something that has structure to it, something that's building. And so today, over the next few minutes, what I want to do is just to gain some proper context for the passage at hand today. Ultimately, what we find Paul doing in the letter of Romans is building a case for the truthfulness of the gospel. This is true. And as a result, it has a real and enduring impact upon our lives. In that case, in Paul's case, part of of what he wants to get across is how the gospel is a culmination, a culmination specifically of what God has been doing in human history. What God has accomplished in Jesus, what he is accomplishing in Jesus, what he will accomplish in Jesus is exactly what he had planned all along. That's what Paul's saying. It's exactly what Israel was waiting and preparing for. It's exactly what you and I and, and every being needs. Specifically this morning, what we find Paul arguing is that the gospel is exactly what God intended to undo the curse, namely that of sin and death in the world. Our passage today is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 15b, so the second part of that verse leading up to verse 19. It's just four and a half verses, but they are quite dense and they are sincerely heartily debated. And so I encourage you to open up your Bibles to follow along as we go. I think you'll benefit from having the text in front of you. And I think part of the way we show, God's, we show value for God's word is that we take it into our hands that we might also take it into ourselves. So Romans chapter 5, verses 15b to 19, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God 
and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. To really get after what Paul is doing here in these verses, it'd be good for us just to restate a couple of the main points that Paul has already made about the gospel in his letter so far. Father Carl mentioned a couple of these, and I just want to restate them today. First of all, Paul has said that Every human being, both Jew and Gentile, which was surprising to to that former camp, every human being, both Jew and Gentile, is a sinner separated from God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. And then he goes on to elaborate his point. Second of all, Paul has said that salvation then comes by grace through faith in Christ. It's not from us, it's from God. Again, in Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no repairing that. And yet, we are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And third, Paul has said, Christ reconciles us and saves us from the wrath of God through his death and resurrection. In the first part of this chapter, chapter 5 that we are in today, Paul declares, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, made righteous by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now with these things as our foundation, I think we can really get into the meat of this passage. As you read through the Bible, even if you just pick up a Bible for the first time, it's really clear, looking at the table of contents, that there are two distinct parts to the Bible. There's the Old Testament, and there's the New Testament. The story of the Old Testament begins in the book of Genesis, and the very first being mentioned is God. It's the very first verse. In the beginning, God. Now, this is perfectly intentional. God is before all things. He's above all things. He's beyond all things. He is the first cause. He's at the center of everything that exists. A few verses later, though, in that chapter, what you'll find is that the first human being, God's creature, is Adam. The name Adam is actually just the Hebrew word for man. So God calls Adam man. God creates mankind in Adam. Adam's the first man, and he's going to be the father of all humanity, even as his wife Eve will be the mother of all humanity. Now we turn to the the story of the New Testament. This story also begins with the mention of one man. But this man is mentioned in the very first verse. Just like Genesis, when God was mentioned in the first verse. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ. Or, to even make the comparison even more explicit, John's gospel echoes Genesis 1 in verse 1, saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament begins with a man, Adam, and the New Testament also begins with a man, Jesus Christ, who evidently is not just a man, but is God, such that he would be mentioned in the very first verse. This is the kind of connection that Paul is drawing today uh, between Adam and between Christ. He's setting them up beside each other in order that he might compare them, compare and contrast. How are they the same and yet how are they different? What he's doing is he's saying there are two kinds of man. Or to put it better, there are two kinds of mankind. Two mankinds. And what Paul is doing is, is to, to make sure that we understand that the second man is the fulfillment of the first man. The second is the fulfillment of the first. As Paul does this, what we're seeing in this passage is Paul employing a theological concept known as typology. You might be familiar with that. Typology is when something in the story of Scripture, because Scripture is a story, it's unified from start to finish, when something in the story of Scripture prefigures a more important something that is to come, it's essentially it's theological foreshadowing. If you read novels and you understand that there's something, there's a detail in the beginning of that novel that is going to um, kind of unfold in the end, and it's going to make sense. That's, that's what Paul is saying. Here in chapter 5, he's saying Adam is a type of Jesus, type being a foreshadowing, a prefiguring. In fact, Paul uses that word type in verse 14, which comes right before our passage. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, Adam, who was a type of the one to come. Who's the one to come? Jesus. Adam is a type, a foreshadowing. So in our passage, chapter 5, verse 15b to 19, Paul is holding up Adam in the one hand. He's holding up Jesus in the other. And essentially he says, here are two kinds of man. Two kinds of man. One committed one act, which brought one result, for the rest of his kind. The other man committed one act, which brought about one result for the rest of his kind. One man, one act, one result. One man, one act, one result. The first man is Adam, who is mentioned here in verse 15 and verse 16 and verse 17 and verse 19, almost every verse. And what Adam's one action is described as is three things. Paul says it's trespass. It's a trespass. In verse 15, 16, 17, and 18, he calls it that. In verse 16, he calls it sin. And in verse 19, he calls it disobedience. He's talking about the same one act there. And yet he doesn't say explicitly what he's talking about. What is this one act, Paul? Well, Paul's assuming that we understand Scripture's story. He's writing to believers. And they must know that in Genesis 3, despite God giving Adam food from every tree in the garden except one, Adam had to have fruit from the one tree. This one act, Paul is saying, brought about one result for all of Adam's kind. And the way Paul describes that in verse 15 and 17 is as death. Now for us, we tend to just think of death as when the heart stops beating. 
In the Bible, that's, that's not even the worst part about death. The worst part about death is the separation from God that comes. The, the God who made us, the God who made our hearts start to beat in the first place. And yet, this is exactly, death is exactly what God said would come to Adam if he did what he ended up doing. God said in Genesis 2, For in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. And for God, that wasn't just a, one day your heart will stop beating. Paul describes also this result of Adam's one action with the words condemnation in verses 16 and 18, and also as sinful or made sinners in verse 19. Likewise, Paul doesn't describe what this one result is because he assumes that we know what he's talking about. He assumes that we know what he means by the word death. That yes, it is a physical death that all of Adam's race will experience, when one day our souls are separated from our bodies. But even more so, Adam, uh, Paul thinks we, we, we already know that he, we understand that spiritual death has come to us in which we experience an estrangement from God, not just from our own bodies. And this is not just a lamentable tragedy in the story of Scripture. It's not just something that we look at and say, this sucks. It is a cosmic catastrophe. That's... That's a better way to describe it. However, that's just the first man. It's just the first man. The story doesn't end there. The second man Paul identifies uh, as Jesus Christ, the second Adam. He names him in verse 15, verse 17, and 19. And this second Adam, the new and better Adam, committed one singular act as well. This, of course, is Christ's perfect sacrificial death upon the cross. Paul calls it, in verse 15, the grace of God, and he calls it the free gift in verse 15 and 16 and 17. He also describes it as righteousness in verse 18 and as obedience in verse 19. He's talking about the same thing, the cross. This one act brought about one result for all those who will participate in this new kind of man. And that one result is called justification. Not condemnation, justification. That's what he says in verse 16 and 18. He calls it life in verse 17 and 18, not death. And he says we are made righteous in verse 19, not made sinners. These are the two humanities. One man's disobedience leads to death for all his kind. One man's obedience leads to life for all his kind. That's what Paul is setting up for us today. Last week... Father Carl shared how the early church conceived of the gospel. And there were three main parts of how they wrote about and talked about and sang about the gospel. Number one, they, they saw it as personal salvation, that you personally are saved. Number two, they saw it as a participation in a new humanity, that you're actually joining something much bigger than yourself, something that God is doing in the world. And number three, they saw it as an eschatological kingdom that is to come. It's future. It's coming. It's on the way. And the apostles and those that they instructed and those who taught the apostolic faith, faith would say, this is what Jesus has accomplished for us. These are the realities. And that's, in fact, what Paul is describing for us today, as should not be surprising for us. And yet, what we might not have noticed is that Paul is also demonstrating how Jesus is actually undoing the very thing which Adam accomplished for us. What were those things? What did Adam accomplish for us? What's the bad news? Number one, it's personal separation from God. 
Number two, it's participation in a broken, fallen humanity. And number three, it's the eschatological wrath of God. The wrath of God that's coming upon sin and evil in the world. And maybe it's a bit more clear now that we see how Jesus Christ undoes the curse. The separation is undone. The old humanity is undone. The wrath of God is undone. My son Ezra, who is four years old, can be quite a talkative fellow. I know you've heard him in this space before. There are times when Ezra uh, says things that are undoubtedly the musings of an ignorant toddler, and yet they sometimes have a philosophical quality to them. When, as good parents, we try and understand the meaning behind what Ezra is saying, sometimes it's quite cryptic. Sometimes we find ourselves stopping to wonder if maybe he's aware of something that we're not. About a year ago, Christy, uh, Ezra would regularly say to me or to Christy, and he would just say this all the time, he would say, Mom or Dad, when I was a baby, I was. I, I guess that's true. <laughs> when you were a baby, you were. Um, before Abraham was, Jesus is. This is deep stuff, right? Ezra's on to something here. This past Friday, our family was having dinner with, with a, a wonderful Christian family whose kids are some, some of Cohen and Hannah's friends from school. And we were at the dinner table, and Ezra looked, looked to the mother of the family, and she said, he said, you don't know who you are. <laughs> I'm a little bit embarrassed, but she handled that quite, quite calmly and confidently, and she said, I do know who I am. And yet, later on in the evening, she brought that back up in our conversation, just the four of us, and she admitted how unsettling it was what Ezra said. He said, like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know who I am. Maybe I should think about that uh, a little bit more deeply. What, what she said was the same thing that I was thinking in my mind, like, do I know who I am? I don't know. Like, do any of us really know who we are at all? Maybe we should think about that. I think we should. Ezra's on to something. This passage is central to our Christian theology of who we are. Do we know who we are? Part of that theology of who we are is our biblical anthropology, or what Scripture teaches us about what it means to be human. A main feature of that anthropology is that God created us. We did not make ourselves. We didn't. And that in making us, God made us in His image to reflect things about Him. So a question for you. Did you have the power to become a human being? No. Did you have the power to exist? No. That was done for you, right? You literally had no choice in the matter. You do not exist as a result of your choice. Neither do you exist as a human being as a result of your choice. It was done by God's creative work and by the work of your parents and their parents and their parents and their parents all the way back to the first man and woman. We did not choose to exist as what we are. Likewise, our theology of what it means to be human also tells us that we did not choose to be born as sinful. We inherited that from Adam. It's our nature. Our nature is our nature. We don't get to change that. We had nothing to do with what Adam did, though, right? Were you there? Was it your fault? And yet we cannot help but operate out of the sinful human nature that we receive from him. 
And therefore, because we operate out of that sinful nature, choosing sin, we therefore just participate in Adam's race, in Adam's humanity. And because we do, Scripture says we are partakers of the death, both physical and spiritual, which sin brings. Now, in a similar way, part of our theology of who we are is also our soteriology or what Scripture teaches about how we are saved. And a main feature of that is that God is the one who saves us. Sound familiar? The redemption which Jesus Christ accomplished and now offers to us is not something we did for ourselves. We didn't choose that for ourselves. We weren't weren't there. We had nothing to do with what Jesus did. We did not cause ourselves to be born again any more than we caused ourselves to be born for the first time. God does that in us. Instead, as Paul says in verse 17, what happens is we receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. We receive it. We put our trust in Jesus. We give lordship of our lives over to him. And when we do that, Scripture says, we then become partakers of the life, both physical and spiritual, which Christ gives to us. And we begin to operate, as we'll talk about next week, we begin to operate out of a new nature, a nature that you did not choose or create for yourself, a nature that God graciously gave to you. These are the two humanities that Paul places side by side in Romans 5. And because we are in the age of of technological updates, I want to make really, really clear that these are not iterations of humanity, like humanity 1.0 and humanity 2.0, like God improved upon his project. Rather, this is about humanity lost and then humanity regained. God does not make junk. He makes things of value. And what Adam did to our race was not God's doing. It was a spoiling of the good. What God does is he brings it back. For the church fathers and for the reformers, this passage was key to understanding who we are. We are participants in a redeemed humanity through Jesus Christ, who not only shows us what it looks like to be a true human, but also who gives us the ability to be that. He restores to us the sacred nature that we've lost as God's image bearers. However, I think there are some ways in which we, in the modern era and in a Western culture, we can more easily get hung up on this passage. And there are actually a lot of ways that I think we could get hung up on this passage. I'm not going to mention them all today because I think you'll just leave here wondering what those are. But I do want to just mention a few of them so that I can then explain what what they look like. First of all, I think we might find it difficult to believe that something that Adam did thousands of years ago can determine our eternal destinies. Does that sit well with you? Relative to the rest of humanity, really, relative to the rest of humanity throughout all time and space, we subscribe to a radical individuality. This is my life. These are my choices. This is my destiny. I am who I say I am. I'm not worried about what came before me or who comes after me. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, says that poem, Invictus. And yet this is not God's view of things. This is not the story of Scripture. 
It's not that the Bible denies that we have an individual responsibility or an individual personality. Rather, it, it does give us the dignity of self-determination that we do have some will. And yet, the default position of Scripture is to operate out of a much stronger sense of our corporate identity. Corporate identity, which we don't really choose, which comes to us, and that we are shaped by, and that we embrace, and we live out of. The fact is that we are indelibly impacted by those who came before us. Who you are. Who you are. Genetically, physiologically, ethnically, was imparted to you by your parents. You didn't choose it. It's your nature. And even, uh, although to a lesser extent, who you are today mentally and emotionally and physically is also inextricably impacted by the way that they raised you or didn't raise you. We do have some, a little bit more determination to escape those things than we do our nature, but yet we're impacted. In the same way, Scripture teaches that all who are born into Adam's humanity bear the stain of sin. There's no one doing it. It's there. You didn't have to choose it. And what that means is that we cannot, because we bear the mark of sin, cannot choose perfectly the good. It doesn't mean we never choose the good, but God's standard of choosing the good is perfection. It's what he made us for. It's who he is. And we simply cannot choose the good as God created us to do. And so what happens, I think, in our culture is that the, the voice of our culture cries out and says, that's not fair. I'm not responsible for what he did. I'm just responsible for what I do. That's not God's view of things. Instead, if we're, if we're looking for truth and we're going to submit ourselves to Scripture, what we end up needing to say instead is, God, you are the just one, and you determine what is fair and what is not, not me. I am not the arbiter of justice in the universe. Second of all, I think we might find it difficult in a passage like this to believe that just one sin could do that much damage. One. And y'all, we're talking about fruit. <laughs> fruit. What Adam did just seems so petty and insignificant, doesn't, doesn't it? I mean, death enters the world because of fruit. And yet, where the voice of our culture cries out, that makes no sense. This is not that bad. God, why are you so upset about one sin? Instead, we have to say to God, God, you are the truth. You determine what is true, not me. Moreover, what, what Adam did is not actually about fruit. It was a violation that word trespass that Paul uses multiple times in this, in this passage, it's, it can be interpreted as violation. Have you ever been violated? Was it not that bad? For God to be violated, who is the epitome of good, that's not a small thing. What Adam did was to violate the command of a God who holds all power and glory, who is all goodness and beauty, and who gave all things needful and pleasurable for Adam to enjoy. And to make the choice that he did was to choose disease over health. 
And in choosing to be infected with the disease of sin, Adam chose also to pass that hereditary disease to each of us. And we see that kind of thing out there in the material world today. And we should not be surprised that it also happens in the spiritual realm as well. Which ultimately means what Paul is talking about here is not just about one sin. It's not just about fruit. It's about all the sin, collective, corporate, cosmic, that that one sin brought into being. Namely, your sin and my sin. That's what this is about. The prophet Jeremiah, who we heard from today, says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, our, heart, our, our hearts are not just basically good. They just need a bug fix here and there. That's not to say there's no goodness in us at all. Rather, it is to say that we are born without the desire or the ability to love God as we were made to do and as he is worthy of. And that disease, that human disease, does cataclysmic damage in the world. And we don't have to look very far. Finally, I think we also might find it difficult to believe that the grisly execution of one perfect man 2,000 years ago could really be the solution to humanity's problems. Really? How about more knowledge? Like if we just got educated, we wouldn't have to deal with this stupid stuff. If we just had a little bit more scientific discovery, then we can understand the universe and then we can make our way in it. Or if we could just solve humanity's problems with some technological advancements. Like we've done great stuff with technology. Think about how much more good stuff we could do. We'll be fine. Or maybe we just need more tolerance. If, if we just got along, if we just stopped hatred and wars, we would really be happy, I think, for the first time. Some philosophers have argued maybe there's no solution at all. There's just not a solution. It's meaningless. It's nothing. The obedience of one Galilean Jew in the first century just seems too small, too, too insignificant, too remote, too irrelevant, too unusual to offer us treatment from the death that we see around us, right? And so we might fail to grasp the magnitude of the tra transcendent love of God and the magnitude of His goodness, which He's given in the Paschal mystery, the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. But instead of missing it, we say, God who is love, you determine what perfect love can do, not me. You determine it. Just as Adam infected us, so also Christ heals us. Just as Adam gave us sin, so also Christ gives us righteousness. Just as Adam gave us suffering, so also Christ gives us peace. Just as Adam gave us death, so also Christ gives us life. Just as Adam gave us hell, so also Christ gives us heaven. Just as Adam estranged us from God, so also the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ restores us to him. Do we understand this? In other words, do you know who you are? Do you know who you were and who you are today? The late Tim Keller, who I still grieve his loss and has been a mentor to me as he's been to so many, puts it so well when he says this, the gospel is that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves 
than we ever dared believe. And yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. This is who you are. Do you know who you are? The voice of our culture tells us that we have the power to determine our own identity. It's my choice. I am what I say I am. And yet I think even the natural world does not agree with that. It doesn't. That philosophy breaks down quite easily. So for those of us who are seeking truth, and maybe today you've not fully embraced the truth of Christianity, but you're, you're close. What we have today is not a discouraging word of condemnation for Paul, from Paul, that, that you participate in the broken humanity. That's true whether you believe it or not. But instead, we have the encouragement that if we are uh, embracing and we see the, the death and the condemnation that's all around us of humankind, Paul is saying, how much more then will we also see the new life that Jesus Christ brings to us? In other words, if we can be confident about what one human, mere human being did to the world through you and me, how much more confident can we be about the God-man Jesus Christ who restores life and immortality to the human race. Today what we are saying, in effect, is God the Creator and the Redeemer, we are who you say we are. This is an act of submission. And if you'll notice, Adam's act in the beginning was one act in which he made himself his own God. And that's the nature of the trespass, of the violation. As human beings, as we enter into a relationship with Christ, what we are doing is we are saying, God, you are God, not me. We are who you say we are. And because of Jesus Christ, when we are in him, that's where our hope lies. That's where our life lies. That's where our righteousness lies. That's where our hope for all eternity lies. And so for you today, what work is there to do? What work is there to do? It is to receive. It is to receive and to enjoy. Next week we'll talk about more what that looks like. So today receive. Amen.